As we begin this morning, please allow me again to remind you of the peak survey that we are filling out. Tomorrow's the last day. Uh, today's even better. There are hard copies available in the church office if you'd rather do that. And we really want to hear from everybody, folks online, you've been sent the link. It will help us in our talking and praying and planning about the future of Cary Alliance Church. Also want to ask you please to keep in mind uh, Fall Festival, which is coming up this Saturday. Uh, and we need folks who are participating as well as folks who are going to come and have fun. And also the fact that that evening is a concert by Corbin. Uh, this is a fabulous band from South America uh, and the Inca Link ministry, the testimonies in Spanish and in English will be very powerful, as will the singing. It's a tremendous opportunity for our entire community. We have these invitations in English and Spanish, and most of them are still out there. So please, take some home, hand them out, leave them at places where you know folks will see, him, see them and perhaps uh, respond to that invitation. That's not fair. We've heard it. If we've ever been a kid, we've actually said it. And if we've ever raised children, we've probably heard it more than we want to. Nobody is better than a defense attorney in a court of law at objecting to any violation of what's fair than somebody who's between the ages of what? Three and 18? <laughs> 40? That's exactly right. 55. You know, I was thinking about when I'm going down 1010 Road and those times that I actually hit the red light at Kildare Farm and at Smith Road and at US 1 and at the other side of US 1 and how upset I get and it boils down to the lights aren't fair, which is ridiculous, but that's how we think. We want life to be fair and we boil inside when it's not, and that's not new to us. It really is as old as Job or even older. Job objected to how the wicked prosper and actually said, why doesn't God punish them? And then you get to the Psalms and David in Psalm 10 asks the same question and, and points out just how it seems like the wicked experience one blessing after another and ask the Lord about that. And then all through the Psalms, you see the same thing. You get to Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations after the fall of Judah, and he asks the same question. Why is it? Why is it that the wicked prosper? This just isn't fair. Well, Obadiah has one of the answers to that question. And I trust that in the course of our study today, the Lord will open our hearts and minds not only to what is fair, but even beyond that. In looking at Obadiah, it's important to understand where this book falls into the whole course of history. And amazingly, these 21 verses actually cover most of the entire history of the nation of Israel. The thing is, if you, if you are in a book in which you were talking about Judah and Edom, 
you are actually talking about Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, the sons of Rebekah. In fact, in the book, the author switches from talking about Judah and Edom to talking about Jacob and Esau. So we have to remember those two, and, and Genesis tells us that they were struggling in their mother's womb, and they came out with one grasping the heel of the other, and their life is a story of conflict between brothers, and that conflict then continues generation after generation. It was God's will, even though he had chosen Jacob over Esau, it was God's will for them to live in brotherhood, but they constantly battled against that. And so we have the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, being led out of slavery in Egypt, and they need to go through Edom, Esau's land, and the Edomites say, no, you have to make your way around, and so they go around. Why? Kind of just that spiteful brotherly friendship that brothers so often share among themselves. That's in Deuteronomy 2. At the end of Deuteronomy, they have to go through again, and this time the Edomites allow them to go through, and kind of as a representation of that need for these two brothers to live in peace, the Lord says to Moses, to the children of Israel, as you go through, don't touch anything, don't destroy anything, go through peacefully, pay for everything that you use, the Lord wants these brothers to live in peace. You get to the book of Numbers, and God commands the Israelites not to hate their brother Esau, the Edomites. In fact, the following generations are actually to be permitted to be part of the promised people, the people of Israel. And so under Joshua, Judah, and Edom, share a common border, the southeast border of Judah, and they share that border peacefully. But it does not continue that way. When David unites the kingdom, he actually brings the Edomites into subjugation, and his general, Joash, actually killed all of the males that he could find among the Edomites. And so that enmity rises again. That's in 1 Kings. In 2 Kings, the Edomites ally together with some other kings, and they throw off the yoke of Judah. And so this conflict goes back and forth. That is around the year 850. That might be when the book of Obadiah was written, that time that Edom joined together with a couple of other kings and defeated Judah and threw off that yoke. But it's not actually likely that that's when it took place. Because for another 300 years, the back and forth struggle would continue until finally, around the year 600 and then continuing to 586 BC, the Edomites allied themselves with the Babylonians, participated in the siege of Jerusalem, exalted at the overthrow of Jerusalem, joined in the pillaging of the city, and very much exulted 
over what had been taken, uh, over what had taken place. The psalmist, Psalm 137, talks about how they rejoiced at the fall of uh, Jerusalem, and Jeremiah in Lamentation says, Rejoice and be glad, daughter of Edom, but you also will drink from that cup. So this conflict is the background for what we read about in Obadiah. It's also important to understand the place of the book of Obadiah in the 12 minor prophets. You see, there's probably a 200-year gap between Amos and Obadiah. So far, we have been talking mainly about prophets who ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel about the time that it was in conflict with Assyria. You have to fast forward almost 200 years to the conflict between the southern kingdom of Judah and Babylon to get to the time of Obadiah. But here you have the book placed right after Amos. Now we need to remember that these 12 books were recorded on one scroll and were assembled in a way that was primarily chronological but not exclusively chronological because there are also thematic relations between the books. And so remember, as we were talking about Amos, Amos starts with a condemnation of all of the nations surrounding Israel. But very quickly, Amos changes streams. In fact, he surprises us by saying, yeah, the nations are going to be punished, but you, Israel. And the rest of the book of Amos, up until the last half of the last chapter, is about God's anger towards the nation of Israel and the judgment and condemnation that awaits them. And it's only at the very end of the book of Amos that he gets back to that theme. He mentions Edom, he mentions the nations, and then he kind of drops that theme, but Obadiah picks it back up. Obadiah answers the question of the people of Israel and Judah. What about the nations? You said you were angry at the nations. You said that you would bring judgment upon those nations. This isn't fair. When will they experience the things that you have promised against them? And Obadiah says, the day of the Lord is coming, and it is inevitable. And in God's timing, justice will be meted out upon the wicked, and the people of God's mercy will live in peace under his rule. So let's look at how that plays out in Obadiah. First thing to understand, Obadiah tells the nations, in particular tells Edom, no one is outside of the Lord's sovereign rule. No one is outside of the Lord's sovereign rule. Let's read verses 1 through 4. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you who live in the clefts of the rocks and who make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, 
From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom feels that it is invincible. And there's very good geographic argument to make for that case. This nation of Eden was a, a mountainous nation, again located to the south and east of Judah, but characterized by sandstone cliffs, by craggy mountains. Uh, the, the land extended from valleys up until about a mile high. There were caves and all kinds of hidden hollows and deep ravines. It was a difficult land to, to traverse. It was a land that had the natural barriers that keep enemies out and keep people in. Edom felt that it was inaccessible. If you're familiar with uh, with geography and with archaeology and know about the city of Petra, the ancient city of Petra. That is an Edomite city built into the cliffs, accessible only by a mile-long uh, ravine that at some points is only about 15 feet wide. And it was said that a couple of dozen brave warriors could keep out an entire army that would have had to make its way through this narrow ravine to reach the city. It was a fortress. It would have been like a land army trying to traverse the Grand Canyon to invade the other side when the defenders know where all the water is, know all of the dead-end ravines, know all of the secret hiding places, and possess the high ground as the army is trying to ascend the other side. There's simply absolutely no way. A nation, an invading army, would say, let's go around. And that's exactly what they did through the millennia. Go around Edom. Now, not all the time. There were times we've talked about it, that Edom was in conflict and the, and the battle went back and forth. But the Edomites felt secure because of the geography in which they lived, dwelling on the heights, protected by the geography, almost impossible to overcome. But as a friend of mine pointed out, Yahweh says, you might be high up, but I am even higher. Remember we read about God the Creator in those hymns of Amos? He treads the mountaintops. He roars and they are stripped bare. He put the stars in place and rains from heaven. He says to the Edomites, you can build your fortresses like an eagle's nest. Have you seen an eagle's nest perched on the side of an absolutely inaccessible cliff? You can build your fortress there. You can build your fortress among the stars. And I will bring you down. Edom may be inaccessible to man, said one commentator, but not to God. And so the Lord's conclusion is don't let your pride deceive you. Edom was proud of its location, was proud of its wisdom. That area was known for the wisdom of the men of the east. One of Job's counselors was from Edom. It was known for its strength. It was known for its riches because they controlled the trade routes. And God says, none of that 
puts you outside of my sovereign rule. It reminds me of Jeremiah, who was Obadiah's contemporary. We don't know which one of them quoted the other, but undoubtedly they quote and they refer to each other in their prophecies. And Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. And it's not just Edom. We, we need to take pride seriously. There are all kinds of sins that we take seriously. But for some reason, pride kind of sits on the edge of those acceptable sins. He's a great guy, but he is proud, but boy, he does good things or, or whatever it might be. Don't let your pride deceive you, says the Lord. We need to take it seriously. We need to recognize that pride is what brought Satan down. Isaiah refers to the evil one, the son of the dawn, the bright and morning star, who said to himself, I will ascend to the level of God, who tried to establish himself outside of God's authority and was brought down, who said, I will become like God, and God showed him who really is in charge. And then what were his words to Adam and Eve in the garden? You can be like God. And that's what he says to us to this day. Step outside from under God's rule. Decide for yourself what is true. Decide for yourself what is pleasurable, what is right, what is good for you, what you want to achieve. You can reach those heights. You can be anything you want to be apart from God. And God says, nothing is outside of my sovereign rule. The next thing that Obadiah has to tell is that the Lord's retribution is terrible and just. Let's look at verse 5, verses 5 through 9. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. They would, not, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Eden, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors, Temen, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. That is the retribution that the Lord has in store 
for the people of Eden. Think about those images. If a thief or a robber comes to your house, what do they take? They take a few items of value that will be of gain to them. They leave your pots and pans, they leave your picture books, they leave some of the things that you need in order to survive. Your closet probably has most of your clothes. They wouldn't take any of my clothes, that's for sure. God says that's not how it's with Edom. Everything is gone. It's like a fire swept through, burned it to the ground, and absolutely nothing is left. Or the grape harvest. When the harvesters go through, they pluck the grapes, but they leave the stray ones. There's something there for someone else to come through and glean the grapes. When God gets done with Edom, the only thing that's left is what's rotten and trampled underfoot. This is the devastation that awaits the wicked who have fallen under God's wrath. And it is a terrible thing. It is a complete destruction. Brothers and sisters, we must understand how complete is the destruction that awaits those who live in rebellion outside of God's sovereign rule. Jesus actually said more about hell than he said about heaven. Now, that's not because hell's more important than heaven, but it's because we like to hear about heaven. But until we come to Christ, we need to hear about hell. Jesus described it as a real place. He described it as a place of complete punishment. He described it as a place of eternal torment. The destruction that awaits the retribution is complete. And we object to that teaching because we think, how can that be right? But the next thing that Obadiah has to say is that that retribution is deserved. The next section of these verses is devoted to why Edom is going to be subjected to this punishment. Let's read verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners had entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them, one of the foreigners, the invaders. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble." Obadiah describes the violence that the people of Edom have committed against their brother, Judah. It's interesting, James Boyce boils down the sin of Edom to unbrotherliness. We might think, wow, is that really that bad? 
Let's remember, the Apostle Paul said, if someone doesn't provide for their own family, they are worse than an unbeliever. There is something to familial connection that is of value and that the Lord defends. And here, it is the unbrotherliness of Esau that brings this terrible retribution from the Lord. He equates standing aloof in interested examination as violence. G. Campbell Morgan said it much better than I just did. Esau watches from the heights of self-satisfaction while his brother is destroyed and so invites God's condemnation. There are eight different specific sins of Edom that are pointed out in these verses. Those you should not, you should not, you should not. And interestingly, they can be divided into three geographical locations, actually. And so the first set of these condemnations is Edom off from a distance, standing aloof, observing what is happening. And the prophet says, you should not gloat over your brother's destruction. You should not rejoice from afar at what has taken place. You should not boast in their day of ruin. So that's standing afar in that position of pride, rejoicing over the downfall of my rival. And God says that's violence. The next location is actually in the city of Jerusalem. So, observing destruction from afar, but then joining in, Obadiah says, you should not enter into the city along with the invaders. You should not gloat, and in this case, it's standing over the bodies. You should not gloat in the day of destruction. You should not pillage along with the enemy, you are so much like them. And God calls that violence. And then there's two more sins. This is committed on the border between Judah and Edom. As the refugees flee from the Babylonian armies, the people of Edom catch them at the border, kill some, and turn others over to be sold into slavery, to be taken as captives into Babylon. The hatred of Edom in its pride is complete, and so God's punishment is deserved. And we might look at that and say, okay, but that's not me. I haven't done that. I haven't pillaged anybody. I haven't turned anybody over to be killed or to be enslaved. But how often do we sin from afar or do we step in and engage? We can talk about that in the realm of sexual sin, some from a place of relative safety, sometimes actually engaging. Jesus says there's no difference. 
look with lust, engage in adultery, it's still an abomination before the Lord. We can talk about that with financial sin. Are white-collar crimes any better than the thieves and robbers who actually enter in? No. We can talk about it in sins of causing divisiveness behind the scenes as versus entering into direct conflict. Is one any better than the other? The Lord calls all of these things violence. Every one of them is a violation against His law and brings the terrible and just retribution that we deserve. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? And Jesus says, for the Samaritan, it's the Jew. For the Jew, it's the Samaritan. These people who have hated each other historically nonetheless have a responsibility towards each other. Everyone around us, everyone in this world is our brother or sister, and we cannot look in a disinterested distance as they're suffering or engage directly in their downfall and expect to be viewed as innocent. The other thing that Obadiah points out in regard to God's punishment is that it is parallel, that it is equal to the crime. God intervenes in verse 15 and says, the day of the Lord, that day of judgment is coming. It is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And it's really remarkable how that takes place in Obadiah. The direct correlation between the crime and the consequence. Edom is high and lofty and proud, and God says, you will be brought down. In fact, to place an emphasis on how low Edom is going to be brought down, God, well, the prophet starts talking like Yoda, <laughs> moving the important word to the front of the sentence, small you will be among the nations, utterly despised I will make you. The Lord points out how Edom has betrayed Judah. Well, in verse 11, Edom itself will be betrayed by its allies. The Lord points out how Edom pillaged Judah. Well, in verse 13, Edom itself will be pillaged, even its hidden treasures, what's tucked under a rock in a cave that nobody can find. Everything will be taken. The people of Edom cut down and destroyed the refugees out of Judah and will themselves be cut down and destroyed. Parallel language, parallel actions, underscoring the fact that each one will receive 
according to what they have done, and then another emphasis on the fact of how terrible that punishment will be. Verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. The first drinking that takes place is Edom joining in with Babylon, drinking in celebration. Just as you drank in celebration on my holy hill, now you, Edom, now all of the nations will drink and drink the terrible cup of God's wrath. That's why we read Psalm 75 earlier. Did you hear that description? The foaming cup of God's wrath that will be drunk to its dredges. That is what awaits the wicked. That is what awaits Edom and the nations, because this judgment that is described here is universal. It's not just Edom we read about in verse 16. It's all of the nations, and is final. It will be as if they had never been. How terrible is the retribution that awaits those who think they are outside of God's sovereign rule. There is, of course, good news at the end of Obadiah. The Lord's people are restored and are established. See in verse 17 through 20, on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame, Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. The people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. Got to do that one again because we need the geography going on here. The people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepherd will possess the towns of the Negev. Obadiah here is describing Israel's complete victory and restoration. First of all, victory over its enemies like a fire consumes stubble. Absolute, total establishment of God's people as the victors in the end. Then he speaks of the restoration of these borders. Just like Amos drew a circle around Israel and talked about judgment on the nations before honing in on Israel, Obadiah does the opposite. He hones in on Judah and on the entire nation being reestablished within its full borders and then extending beyond those borders into the nations and the regions that they were never able to conquer before, giving a picture of entire possession of everything that God had ever promised them. And that goes into the spiritual realm as well. And so we read the beautiful, beautiful words at the end of the book, verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be 
the Lord's. In the end, justice is established and everything is brought under God's sovereign rule. But there's a problem with this beautiful picture. Is Judah actually any better? Isn't it Judah that invaded those lands of Edom to continue the enmity? Isn't it Judah that initiated genocide? Again, let me repeat, that General Joash tried to kill all of the men in the entire nation. Isn't it Judah that betrayed and behaved in an unbrotherly manner? And then, of course, we can extend those questions beyond Judah to ourselves. Is there anybody here who actually wants what is fair? Have you ever tried to say that to your kids? That's not fair. You want to know what's fair? I'll show you what's fair. Does any one of us want to stand before the Lord and tell Him what's fair? Let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And then he follows with Romans chapter 3, in which he makes it very clear that none of us fall in the category of those who seek good. All of us fall in the category of those who are self-seeking. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. If we want what is fair, then we will receive the complete and terrible and just retribution that God holds in store for everyone who seeks to live outside of His sovereign reign. Because any time we choose our way over His way, our pleasure over pursuing Him, we are stepping outside into His wrath. And then here is the beauty of Obadiah. Who is it who came down from on high? Who is it who was betrayed by the one he ate bread with? Who is it who bore on himself the ultimate shame of a cross? Who is it whose brothers stood aloof at a safe distance 
while his enemies stood nearby and gloated. Who is it who drank to its dregs the foaming cup of the wrath of God poured out on our sin? Who was stripped? For whose possessions did they cast lots? Jesus suffered the violence against Jacob and then bore upon himself the retribution that was due Esau. And he did it for our sake. The complete and terrible justice that we deserve was fully meted out on the Son of God on the cross. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How do we respond to that? First of all, be found in Christ. If you've asked yourself the question, can I really trust him? Please do not put yourself in your wisdom above his truth. If you've wrestled with the issue, do I want to give him my whole life? I have so many dreams, so many, I want to, so many things I want to do. Please fall fully on Jesus Christ. He is the one and the only one who bore God's wrath in your place and can offer you the mercy, the grace, the fullness of blessing that is promised at the end of the book of Obadiah. If you want to learn more about that, please come forward today. After the service, we can talk and pray together. I think there's another question that we can ask ourselves here, and that is, who do you trust? Who do you trust for your future? We live in a difficult and challenging time. Edom trusted its high mountains and its strong warriors and its fabulous wealth, and God said, I can bring all that down. Are we building up for ourselves protections against the future that are described as the riches of a wise man or the, wisdom, the riches of the rich, the wisdom of the wise, the strength of the warrior? Or are we building up for ourselves trust in the Lord and dependence on Him? Yes, we need to plan. I try and learn, I try to study the times, I try to invest wisely, I try, I really do try to take care of this body so that I can live in health as much as possible. But in the end, none of those things is reliable. All of them might be swept away, and that's okay as long as we know that we've got the king. He's on our side. Jesus, the ultimate victor, said, I am with you 
always, and that is all that you need. I think I've got time here for this little illustration. I don't know about you, I don't really like the Narnia movies because they're so far away from the books, but at the end of the movie on Prince Caspian, there's a scene that's totally out of the movie's imagination. It's not in the books at all. You have little Lucy. I'm going to guess she's about eight years old, standing on one end of a bridge. And you've got all the armies of the enemy on the other side of the bridge with their horses and their armor and their swords and their spears and their implements of battle. And she steps forward on that bridge and she's got a little knife. She pulls out her little knife. And the army stops and they're like, what? <laughs> and they're uncomfortable. I mean, who wants to fight that little girl? <laughs> and then Aslan, the lion, steps out of the shadows behind her, and everyone trembles in fear. The king is on your side. And the implements of battle and, and the wealth of our 401ks and none of that in the end is going to save us. It's Jesus. And so let's keep hanging on to him. We say over and over again, and I think it's probably true, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. And our only solution, when it feels like everything's falling apart, when it feels like the future is bleak, and I have no idea how we can make it through tomorrow or next week or next year or the decade to come, keep hanging on to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you reign supreme. Thank you. And thank you for the incredible privilege of belonging to you, of being part of your kingdom. Lord, this week I've asked myself over and over, how can I even preach the sermon? Because there's so many times I commit the sins of Edom in pride or in gloating over someone's misfortune, participating in sin from afar or stepping right into it. We are not worthy of anything except your wrath. Thank you that in your great love and mercy you poured it out on Jesus Christ. And that's horrible to say. The suffering that he endured for my sake. But thank you. Lord, I pray that every person in this room and everyone who might ever hear this sermon will throw themselves entirely on the grace of Jesus Christ and enter wholeheartedly into the kingdom of God because you are the only one that we can trust. You are the only one who will never change. You are the only one who can rescue us from the dark days to come and from the eternal condemnation that hangs over 
those who reject you. Pour out your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.